Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting a local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 43, a conversation with Access Fund's Southeast Regional Manager, Daniel Dunn. Daniel can be considered a perennial land steward as much of his career has focused on stewarding climbing areas around the country. He has previously worked for local climbing organizations such as the Boulder Climbing Community, the Front Range Climbing Stewards, and has previously held a different position with the Access Fund. Originally from the Southeast, he's now brought it full circle, serving as the Southeast Regional Manager based in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We kick off the conversation getting a glimpse of his former years working for these organizations and the work that was required in running a successful stewardship program and an anchor replacement program. I personally got a lot out of this part because Daniel explains it so well and how the rebolting program with the BCC was structured, how he got people involved and out there doing the rebolting. And it was also a nice reminder of some of the things that were discussed all the way back in episode 19 with Scott Underwood when he talked about his rebolting efforts with the Washington Climbers Coalition and their bolting program. After that, we get into a, another reoccurring theme that has been discussed many times on the show regarding crags and boulders not being originally developed with the idea in mind that it may need to have the capacity to handle a large influx of climbers that it would see many years down the road. Daniel gets into what it takes to retrofit a climbing area, but it seems to really come down to having a psyched and dedicated volunteer base. Until you can get a formal paid conservation crew like the Front Range Climbing Stewards, you will likely have to depend on volunteers. That's okay. But if you're at that point, I'd say do everything you can to engage the local folks in your community. Because building trail and replacing hardware is fun and people do want to help. And if you're able to provide food and free beer, I'd say success is pretty much guaranteed. After getting a thorough history on Daniel's stewardship work, we get into some more current happenings and what he has going on with his new job in the Southeast. He's just getting settled into his role, so I didn't bombard him with too many questions, but he shared a bit about what he'll be up to in the coming months. Traveling around to the states that fall in his jurisdiction, from Mississippi to Florida, all the way up to the Carolinas, he'll be meeting with local representatives and land managers to continue moving climate conservation in the right direction. I know he's really psyched to work alongside some strong LCOs, such as the Carolina Climbers Coalition, as they are fresh off a new acquisition in North Carolina. 
So I want to give a big congrats to them and the Access Fund for making that happen. And finally, we wrapped up with a quick plug for Access Fund's annual conference happening this year in Chattanooga. The conference is slated for November 11th and 12th. You can find all the details and register for the conference on Access Fund's website, and I have a link to it in the show notes as well. I had the chance to attend several of these conferences now and got to travel to a bunch of new places to meet with like-minded climbers and, of course, sample some of the climbing in that area. So if meeting conservation-minded climbers and, you know, going climbing is your thing, it's definitely not to miss, especially if you're in the southeast. All right, that's a nice intro to Daniel, so let's get into it, shall we? Please enjoy my conversation with Access Fund's Southeast Regional Manager, Daniel Dunn. I'm always really excited to have an Access Fund staff member to come on the show to get a kind of a first-person point of view of what's going on with the organization and have the listeners get to know you guys a bit better as well. And I have people ask me all the time, what does the Access Fund do exactly? And I give them my elevator pitch of sorts and about being a conservation organization, an accredited land trust, so on and so forth, that protects pl- uh, climbing areas around the country and, and such. But it's always good to hear it straight from you all and explain what you guys do. And so that's why I wanted to have you on here today to hear about, more about yourself and your role with the Access Fund. So I'd love to yeah, hear more, a bit more about yourself to kick things off. Uh, Daniel, where, where you're from, where you're currently based, and share a bit more about your climbing story, just the who, what, when, where, and why of your climbing history. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's good to be on the show. Um, I'm originally from the Southeast. I kind of grew up between North and South Carolina, mostly in a little town called Aiken, South Carolina, and then an even smaller town called Nashville, North Carolina, and went to college in Columbia, South Carolina, and spent a nice chunk of time in the past five or six years out west to live in the Front Range for about five years, and then have made it as far as Reno um, mm-hmm. before coming back to the Southeast, and now I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and have been here for all of like seven days, I think, <laughs> still, oh, wow. still unpacking, um, boxes are everywhere. Uh, and the the transition from from Reno dryness Nevada dryness to uh, <laughs> setting humidity in July has been kind of intense, but yeah, it's a good reminder. Uh, <laughs> yeah, trying to get back used to it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, when when did the climbing start for you? Yeah, I think I had you know probably like a pretty typical start to climbing for a lot of folks like around my age, like in the twenties to thirties age range where I started when I went to college. I got really involved with the outdoor recreation program at the University of South Carolina. And and I maybe like climbed once or twice before, like, you know, in high school or something on some random sort of trip, but never really like it wasn't much of anything. It really started when I was a freshman in college. Uh, there was not that not that Columbia is necessarily that close to a lot of climbing. It's you know two and a half hours or so to the closest crags, at least at the time it was. Um, but there was a really good community of people there that were really excited to get out. Um, and yeah, it's kind of what hooked me. It's like a bunch of bouldering places like rumbling bald and, yeah. uh, looking glass and, and getting more into trad climbing in North Carolina and then making trips over to Chattanooga for the really good bouldering here and sport climbing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got started. And then it's taken me all over the place now, which has been kind of cool. Lots of places I would have never thought I would have gone to all for climbing. It's just been sort of a funny thing to see. Anything international? Is that all domestic? No, no, I'm not the most well-traveled. Um, I maybe squeaked out to Canada once or twice. I've been to Squamish. Uh, but yeah, no, mostly it's been all around around the U.S. And uh, I've been lucky to like kind of pair it with some work things or with some, yeah, just, you know, making connections with people in the climate community to make trips go. But, but yeah, lots mm-hmm. of places all over the country. 
Cool. Yeah, I know you've been down in my neck of the woods. You spent some time in the Black Canyon. Yeah, the Black's one of my most favorite climbing areas ever, um, which is kind of funny because it's like definitely a little bit of an acquired taste, but I love it that Chelsea Dirty Canyon. There's so much fun <laughs> adventure to be had. <laughs> lots of adventure, lots of fun. Um, yeah, it's definitely, I think, still under the radar a bit, so keep a little hush-hush. But yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, in between some of the Choss and some of the Poison Ivy and other loose runouts and everything there's some really good rock and just the, the scenery and the venue itself is just spectacular oh yeah it's, it's just it's hard to have like that level of adventure in that many places in this country uh mm-hmm. where you can you can make really just put it all out there um and you can right. also have like not as intensive an experience but yeah it's just a really cool place and yeah the beautiful canyon there's great rock in there uh yeah it's a special place yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've I've have since retired from climbing there, even though it's only like a couple hours from my or like less than two hours from my house. But um, yeah, I've had a lot of good times there, and I miss it sometimes. But it's it's all right. I moved on to other things. <laughs> That's okay. You can go do some sport climbing, get strong, and leave that yeah. dirty poison ivy stuff behind. <laughs> totally, exactly. Well, you're in like a southeastern mecca now of Chattanooga, and I'm I'll be down there for the annual conference this November, my first time to Chattanooga, and I cannot wait cannot wait to come check it out yeah it's, it's also a really special place it's funny i like i mean this was like the place to be back when i was living in the southeast like everyone was coming here all the good climbers were living here and uh it's cool to be back now and uh some of the same folks are still here the you know, same climbers still here, a lot of new ones too um mm-hmm. but yeah i mean I, just, like, I just got here so it's like i'm really excited to like really explore the backyard more. and i feel like i've seen a lot of the main places but uh, i have really not treated it like a backyard crag yet and so it'll be really cool to get to really know them and honestly to get back into bouldering and sport climbing i really haven't done i haven't been as committed to those kind of things the past five or six years and so i might finally mm. get strong really stronger <laughs> at least try to it, it works you know when i moved to gunnison i it was like just trad climbing just gear climbing for like five or six years and i was like I put the quick draws away, put the bouldering pad away for, for the most part. And then, yeah, in the last, ever since I kind of stopped climbing in the black, I was like, all right, I'm going to start sport climbing again for the last, then for the last five or six years now. It's been, I'm definitely still gear climbing for sure, but mostly just cragging. No, no like huge roots, but man, it's, it's so much fun just having each one of those disciplines right in your backyard. Like I do. And now you do. It's it's awesome. Yeah, and no, I, I kept joking that like sport climbing was like the last sort of discipline I was saving, like a real sport climber, like projecting <laughs> and looking strong, yeah. taking your shirt off, good crack snacks, all that kind of stuff. And so yeah, that's what I'm excited to grow into here. Uh, cool. It'll be fun. Yeah, right on. I, you know, I, I when I first learned about Chattanooga, it was like all about the T-wall. I just wanted to go to the T-wall and like that was it. And then as I got to know more about Chattanooga, I was like, it seems to get, I don't know, like there's like Denny Cove and so much other sport climbing and stuff in the Obed. I don't think it's too far from there and all the bouldering. I mean, is that starting, is that overshadowing the T-Wall? Like I could have this completely wrong, but <laughs> am I am I on the right path here? No, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, T-Wall is definitely like, it's got some international uh, fame to it, and, but it's right up there. I mean, so does, you know, so does LRC and uh, HP40 and Rocktown. Mm, oh, like, yeah. Those have all they got like a little bit of international following uh, and, and deserve it too. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. the whole like kind of Cumberland Plateau, it's kind of tag region, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia is just chuck full of good sandstone and lots of new yeah. areas coming up, lots of potential for projects, which is cool. It's you know one of the reasons I 
pick Chattanooga to, to move to in the Southeast um, is just to have so many possibilities for new projects to work on, just cliff lines everywhere, boulders everywhere, um, and, yep. and project partners and LCO partners who were psyched. Um, so yeah, that's, it's definitely got a lot going for it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, good for you. Uh, congrats on your new job and everything. We'll get into that here a little bit later. But let's uh, let's start from the top. Like I, we were talking a little bit before I hit the record button about your um, perennial land steward position you've kind of had for a while and feel like you've had a career in stewardship for quite some time. Like we don't know each other super well. I think we have actually met in person one time. I think, I think so. I think we did definitely meet somewhere. It must have been a I think it was in before. Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was in Seattle 2019. Uh, it, was, it was pretty quick. Um, pretty, kind of quick introduction to each other. But yeah, from my understanding, you know, you had a access fund. You were, you were with the access fund previously um, in a stewardship position, I believe. So I'd love to hear just kind of where this stewardship career began for you and when, yeah, the who, what, when, where, why of all that. Yeah, yeah, kind of like a boomerang access fund server. There's a few of us now that have been there and left. <laughs> I know, Andrea in the same boat. Yeah. Uh-huh, and then came back. I think that's her term even. Um, yeah, I guess <laughs> some of the stewardship stuff, it, I mean, climbing-wise, it started a little later, but um, in just general, it's, it started about that same time, like freshman in college, I mean, a little bit before. Um, I I guess the, the first job where I was working, and it was a, a summer job, like my freshman year of college, I worked for this boy scout ranch out in northern new mexico called philmont that has huge trail system um and i got a job there on their trail crew which at the time was filled with a bunch of seasonal professionals from other like forest service districts and blm professionals who were really good at what they did and so it's really cool entry into that sort of world of trail-based stewardship and just working in the field and having this sort of hitch life of going out and doing you know 12 13 days of trail work going around doing maintenance work and backpacking the whole time um, in a really beautiful area. And, and that was kind of what got me hooked. And then I had another summer job where I worked for sort of like a guidey-esque group uh, based out of Jackson and the Tetons, taking high schoolers out on sort of adventure trips, but also a lot of stewardship work. So working with MPS and Forest Service staff on trail projects uh, all throughout that sort of uh, greater Yellowstone area. Um, and then that sort of influenced my like my major in college, I switched it from, I was a marine science, like marine biology major and shifted to environmental science and was really interested in watershed science and just sort of how we interact with our natural world and how we take care of it and how our built infrastructure can really impact it. And yeah, I guess that's kind of how, like th- those were all sort of things that were brewing and spinning around. And at the same time, I was getting into rock climbing and really liked the community there. Um, and then the first real job I had in there is sort of like, you know, kicked off its quote unquote career. It's kind of funny, like it doesn't, it's hard to call anything a career, but I've just been <laughs> doing it for like enough jobs now. It's like, well, maybe it is kind of a career. Uh, yeah. But I ended up working with the Front Range Climbing Stewards, which is a program of the Boulder Climbing Community. Um, got a job with them. And that was actually a job that got me out to the Front Range. Uh, so I moved from South Carolina to Boulder uh, to work with FRCS and it was an amazing experience um, just working on like intensive siege style stewardship projects all over the front range, like showing up and using all the tricks in the book to also, sorry, there might be some noise in the background. Yeah. Something, something's going down. Okay. Yeah. Pause for a sec. Yeah. <laughs> I was worried that might happen. I'm like by my that's window. Right. I can go to the back room if that's, 
a little more quiet. Oh, no actually. worries. You know, the, the sights and sounds of who I'm talking to is always nice. It was, I had a really nice thunderstorm going on right before we jumped on. I was oh, like, oh, nice. you like set the mood a little bit for an evening chat, you know, like some ominous <laughs> thunder in the background, but the storm is cleared now. So no worries. Yeah, that's funny. Like where we live, like it makes Tendigo feel like this huge town. We're, like, we're kind of like right downtown in this apartment and uh, yeah. it is so bustling. It feels like this huge <laughs> town and there's yeah, lots of street yeah. noise sometimes, but. City life. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, F- uh, FRCS, um, yeah, you're, and then uh, you're segueing from there, I believe. Yeah, yes, yeah. Working with FRCS um, was really like my first experience. Um, I mean, it was really like a big transition going from the southeast to the Front Range, and it's kind of just a different world there. And at the time, FRCS was sort of a joint program with the Boulder Climate Community and with Access Fund, and so like a lot of the admin work was handled by the Access Fund, and so that's how I got to meet a lot of the folks in that office and in that world. Um, but that was, you know, that was just like all, every, all day, every day outside building trails um, with many different land managers, many different partners um, and really doing some high quality intensive stone work and, and really cool and unique projects. Um, and from that, I, after that experience, like that was when I sort of got a little tired of uh, working outside all the time. And I was like, well, maybe an office job sounds nice. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up getting a job with the access fund and I, was working mostly in the office. I was more of like an admin and operations role, um, helping with membership and some of the digital marketing and a lot of the admin. Um, and sort of just things that make the access fund go um, in terms of the yeah. backend work. And so I did that for about two years. Uh, at the same time, was working and volunteering more with the BCC on a variety of things. Um, and then going back, I've kind of boomeranged twice, I guess, like boomeranged twice to the BCC and then twice to access fund. <laughs> I ended up going to the BCC to be their stewardship manager. And so in that That's role, right. I ran all their stewardship programming, all their volunteer-based programming. FRCS was a little bit of a separate entity. Um, and a big focus for that was our our bull replacement program, which at the time was only named, but it became our anchor replacement program or the ARP. Um, and yeah, I got really deep in the world of that, trying to make uh, a program that to really could service the needs of the front range climate community in terms of replacing bolts, which is a lot of fun and uh, a cool community to work with. And then doing a lot of like classic volunteer stewardship days, um, you know, adopt a crag style events all over the place, just kind of everything related to stewardship and more the BCC is pretty small. So everyone kind of wears a lot of hats. So working in the advocacy world, um, supporting FRCS programming, all those kind of things. And then now I've, I've boomeranged again and back at the access fund, uh, working as the Southeast regional manager. And so I'm in charge of delivering sort of all the core access fund programming, uh, just from, from policy to stewardship to acquisitions and access, conservation uh, climate areas in the Southeast, which is really exciting to be coming back here to the place that really like gave me my start and feel like it opened a lot of doors for me and feel like I've got a few more tools now to be able to give back and, uh, and move the needle on some projects and, and do some exciting things for the community here. Cool. Right on. Well, good for you. Like I said, I'm, I'm really excited. You're uh, boomerang back to the access fund, back to kind of where you're, where you're from, kind of just bringing it full circle. And I was curious, I want to bring it back just a little bit because I think it can get confusing for folks who don't know like, the difference between the FRCS and the BCC. <laughs> 
And for me to clarify, the FRCS, that's strictly stewardship, right? And that's like their, is it like their kind of personal conservation crew in a way? Right. It's, yeah, it's a pro, it's a named program of the Boulder Climbing Community. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a professional trail crew uh, that operates like nine months out of the year. Um, and yeah, it's a you know, full-time paid position. Uh, and it's it's sort of like, it's it was a pretty large program. It kind of only had like its own sort of feeling like it was its own thing. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. definitely a program at the BCC and really like a benchmark type model, I think, for for paid professional climbing access work. And the ARP, ARP, yeah, I almost said, yeah, APR. ARP is another <laughs> program that you that you that you develop through that. And it's I think that's something that I think like the organization here in the Gunnison Valley wants to do. And I'm sure other organizations want to develop a formal kind of acre replacement program as well. Could you give a few kind of nuts and bolts on how you put that together? Yeah. Yeah. It's something like, yeah, it's something that I feel like is really getting more on folks' radars and there's a lot of different ways to sort of tackle that issue of replacing bolts and then aging fixed hardware. Um, but for the BCC's case, we had, I think, you know, a growth of like what's pretty natural of sort of a key volunteer uh, leading the charge on the replacement efforts for the BCC. And that was Jason Haas at the time. And he did a great job like getting really organized and mobilized and just doing these sort of big events where we'd have a lot of people come out and replace tons of bolts at one go and making it more of like a community event. And he did that for a number of years. And then just classically happens with volunteers. He sort of shifted priorities and, um, ended up going on other things. And, and the BCC's program sort of fell by the wayside a little bit. There wasn't someone there to really take it and run with it. And so when I got hired, one of my one of the big things I was tasked with was um, developing that program and getting it to somewhere that was professionally run and was a little bit more sustainable and could just run year over year. And so I spent a lot of time actually researching with folks because I think something that happens in, I mean, probably everywhere, but it feels like especially popular in the LCA or climbing world is people are like, well, I'm, I'm the first person to ever do this. I must be coming up with something super unique. I'm going to spend all this time thinking about it rather than just being like, well, I should just see what other people are doing, which is a great place for the conference coming up is just meeting other folks that have done things. Um, yeah. But yeah, I spent a lot of time just talking with folks like Washington Climbers Coalition, um, SLCA, a number of LCOs that had sort of been doing that work for a while now um, just to see what they had been doing and what worked. And so we came up with the strategy of um, running, you know, a big volunteer crew and really bumping up our training. And so getting as many people as we could through our sort of training curriculum for anchor replacement work um, and yeah, basically producing high quality volunteers who come out and do the work for us. And so our model ended up being me as a, as a paid staffer, sort of doing all the back end work and organizing and, and paying for tools and hardware running the training, you know, building the curriculum, running the trainings and getting folks out. And, and the volunteers did the bulk of the work, actually get them on the ropes and replacing bolts. And it took us a little while to get up and running, but the the second year we did it, we ended up replacing like 600 bolts in a year, which is pretty good for a volunteer crew. And, and now this year um, they're on track to replace probably like six or 700. Um, and so they're capitalizing on that, but it's been, uh, yeah, it's a really cool program to be involved with and really cool just to get, kind of just deep in the weeds on that program and, and train a lot of folks. I think that was probably the coolest part was just seeing so many people that were psyched to learn how to rebolt uh, and just willing to come out and put in, put in the sweat and put in the effort to do it. It's like, it's quite an intensive thing. I think it gets glamorized, not, not that much, but people are like, Oh yeah, I want to go out and like use the drill and like put holes, in, not put holes in the rock, but just like, 
I don't know, be out on a rope and it's like, it's a lot of work. It's super hard work. And so the fact that we could like get people who were excited to come out and wanted to learn and get involved and get plugged in was really cool. And some of our volunteers who went through it, like they started and maybe knew a little bit about bolt replacement, but they kind of went through the full curriculum. They're now like our key volunteers, which is really cool to see. Cool. Yeah. I wanted to ask about that, about training up volunteers. Cause that's, it's kind of a lot, you know, it's a lot of trust you're putting in someone to, to do it correctly. And, you know, you don't want to be handing out bolts willy nilly to anyone who, who asks for them and wants to maybe rebolt something. So yeah, I was, I wanted, I was curious about how you might go about training folks that do this. And you mentioned a curriculum. So you actually had something formal put together to train folks on. Yeah, yeah, there were, we put like a number of different sort of checks in place. It is, is that's a big, you know, big concern is like you're working with volunteers. Uh, it's not professionalized. And so there's the potential that there could be more accidents or more mishaps or whatever. And so, yeah, we tried to build in a number of different sort of check marks to help deal with that. Um, one of them being that curriculum, making something that was standardized um, and just we had a whole instructor pool that we could pull from and making sure they were all delivering the same sort of curriculum. And we, we also wanted something that was a little bit more approachable. I think a lot of times like that work can just be passed down to certain folks. You can have to be like in the know or like in, in the crowd if you want to, to learn how to do some of that work from mentorship. And so we wanted to sort of break down some of those barriers where it's like, look, here's a curriculum. We've got folks that are vetted. Um, you can sort of know what you're going to, ex- or you can expect from this, uh, this curriculum or this experience. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time, Coming up with sort of, we did sort of like a multi-part deal. This was partially just for the sake of how much material there was to cover, but also it's sort of like a little bit of a weed out. So we, this was during the time of COVID. So our first sort of element of it was a virtual uh, recorded Zoom session that was like an hour and a half. And it talked a lot about the history, sort of some of the the bolting tactics that you've been using the front range, covered a lot of like key ID things for the most common hardware you'd see, a lot of the tools um, just kind of getting you up to speed and we'd have, we would track folks who went through that and then we would offer hands-on curriculum or hands-on training for the next section. So we would go out and we used, um, Colorado Canyon state parks garage a lot. Um, Mike McHugh would bring out some boulders for us to work in and we would work in the garage there and just have like a four hour session, uh, going through placing bolts, uh, removing the most classic style, the wedge bolts, five piece bolts, um, and then tons of practice time, uh, using our tools. That was another thing we had was we had our own kits. Uh, we have like six, six to eight kits um, that had all the, all the little bits and doodads you would need. And so we would let folks just really get their hands dirty, break things, um, just play around in a really safe environment on the ground. Um, and once we did that, then we would get them out for a day of shadowing. So we would have pretty much an event every month. Um, we would have sort of like this core sort of a team we would pull from that were sort of vetted, uh, volunteers that we knew we could rely on and had a lot of experience. And we would always try and have someone who was willing to be sort of a mentor for the day. Someone who had a lot of experience like Crusher Bartlett or Greg German, uh, two longtime BCC volunteers and uh, well-known folks for doing the replacement work in the front range and have the folks go in and shadow them for the day. Um, and then once they'd gone through all those things, then we would sort of have them like, we would sort of check them. We had the, a process for evaluating people to make sure we knew they had covered all the bases. They'd um, pass some sort of core competencies, um, and then we'd get them out and sort of into that 18 volunteer list and bring them out for a day and expect them to, to put in work for 10 hours at the next event. All right. Wow, that's very robust. I'm going to have to pick your brain about that some more because that's something we aspire to do here in the Gunnison Valley. So we'll have to reconnect on that after uh, after we're done here. 
Yeah, and I'll just one thing I'll plug in there. It's like it's been cool to see, and, and SLCA has been doing this with like transitioning to sort of like the next level of like properly paid uh, rainbow cruises. I'm sure you, I think you probably had them on here to talk about it, but it's yeah, it's it's cool to see. And that was something we were aiming for um, was was kind of building up a really robust volunteer program, and then trying to make that jump ourselves. Because um, yeah, it's just really cool to see sort of the evolution of of rebolting programs. And I feel like there's sort of these models and like, depending on where your LCO or your community's at, you can kind of jump in either. It's just like one person going out with some hardware from the LCO to really more organized kind of training and maybe professional staff helping facilitate to full on crews working, doing uh, work at height type standards. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of anywhere, anywhere you'd want, you can jump in as an LCO. Cool. All right. Well, our friend and colleague Ty Tyler has always preached that when crags and boulders were being developed many years ago, many eons ago. They weren't really set up for success necessarily, and they didn't really have the foresight that they would one day, one day need formal infrastructure to handle the masses that we see today, right? And this, of course, is not to throw any shade at the early developers, but that perhaps it just wasn't on the forefront of their minds back then. And I'm sure you'd agree with Ty's sentiment there. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit about what you've been up against in like kind of retrofitting climbing areas to handle the current population is of populations of climbers and what kind of projects that involves. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems very true. Yeah. Most climbing areas are definitely like that where, I mean, climbers just want to get, they, they just look up and they see the rock and they just make a beeline for it. And so they're not really thinking about the sustainable trail um, or things like that. And so, yeah, it can be really challenging to come in and, especially when you've seen a lot of traffic already, you end up like having to retrofit, you know, these existing trails or access paths that are just totally unsustainable. Um, but sometimes like that's what the work calls for. There's not always a, the potential to put in some, some sustainable trail with these certain grades. Uh, and so a lot of the work ends up being super stone intensive, a lot of dry stone masonry for staircases. Um, that's sort of like, you know, the classic, climbing access trail is it's still straight up. It's just, a, it's a stairmaster now um, with tons of stone staircases in there. But yeah, it's always something that I've dealt with in many climbing areas. And I've also had the opportunity to try and like on the flip side, like come at it from a different approach. Like when new areas are coming up and this is something we've I've talked about with a couple of different LCOs in the Southeast already is uh, is a real potential to kind of cut that off from the start. If you have a brand new area um, and you're looking to develop it, uh, putting that work in at the front, doing a little design work, a little bit of master planning can go a long way. And so that's, that's one exciting thing about all the new areas that have been coming up in the Southeast is that like, there is that potential um, if we get in at the right time and work with the right project partners to sort of avoid that concern. I mean, there will always be, you know, will always be some sort of sustainability concerns with, with more and more traffic, but um, it's impressive what you can do if you get in early and are able to uh, put in with infrastructure from the get-go and like really sort of prep the area before the crowds come in. So when does that kind of, I'm curious when that, when that scale kind of tips in one direction, like if, if there's, if there's trail, a trail work that needs to happen, or you think that needs to happen in your area, but there just isn't a ton of climbing traffic, like is it really justified to put all that work in to do it? I mean, there's enough traffic where people are going to these areas, but it's not getting bombarded like somewhere like on the front range that sees a ton more traffic. Like how would you kind of handle that? Did you, would you have to convince the land manager that, you know, this should be done if it's not one of their priorities? I'd say yes. Like I think it, it's mostly like just stepping back sometimes and thinking about 
that you know, it may not see a ton of traffic in a certain area, but just spending time thinking like, well, it's more than just the climbing on the cliff, you know, and sort of the full experience. And so mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, just spending a little time. And I mean, number one, it's like having, knowing some of the basics, <laughs> like having some of that experience um, to know what a more sustainable trail looks like uh, versus not. Um, but yeah, sometimes it, in like that conversation with the laminators can be tricky. A lot of times what ends up prompting that is like things have gotten so bad, we have to do something. It ends up being a resource concern. Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes like, it's one of those really, you know, sometimes climbers handling things internally um, or within their community can, can be beneficial. But uh, yeah, I think most languages you're starting to understand climbing a little bit more and are starting to like understand it as a positive thing. And the fact that they can come in, I think if you frame it that way, especially of like, hey, this area may see more traffic and you know, like a lot of areas are going to see more traffic. And what we can do is we can save a lot of costs on the back end, a lot of headache on the back end by doing the work now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of an argument we've used with the land managers before is like spend some time now, time, energy now, and down the road, it'll, it'll pay dividends for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've just, I've heard that in the past, like, oh, there's, you know, there's just not a ton of traffic here. So I'm not sure if we have to put our efforts there right now. We got other things to focus on. You're just like, ah, oh, like, come on. I really want to do something here. You're really fired up about it. But yeah, maybe the, the points you're, you're trying to make with them aren't, aren't exactly pulling the right levers to, to get them to uh, get on board with that. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes yeah, definitely like certain areas don't see enough traffic to really need a ton of work. Like I do think you've got to base like a lot of your attention on where the most traffic at, where the climbers are going. And yeah, like, you know, sometimes like some different strategies can work for, for different things. Like definitely the, the super popular sport cliff can maybe take a different strategy and approach than the more obscure adventure area um, in terms of how it's managed and what sort of infrastructure goes in. So it's really definitely like case by case. Um, and it's helpful to have seen a few different examples to be able to pull from when you like, sometimes it's hard to imagine what a certain area could look like when you've only seen one style, like if you've only seen sort of popular, more friendly sport crags, it's hard to imagine what an adventure climbing area could look like or an alpine zone and vice versa. If you've only seen that, you maybe would be blown away by all the infrastructure that can be put in at the sport crag um, and it is required at the sport crag or we know the popular area. And so, yeah, it's very much case by case. And that's, yeah, plays into the discussion with the land managers of like really what, what is this resource and what does it need in terms of its management? Well, stewardship can mean many things. I think it goes beyond just trail work. It involves, you know, some signage, some interpretation, some education, some communication. It can, it can encompass all of that. You know, like I've I mentioned before on the show, I work in stewardship myself, and I mean, just working outside on on whatever that project is for the day is just one component. So, I'm curious how you've pulled all those kind of things together over your stewardship career, and what what your in your opinion what makes a successful stewardship program. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of things and there's like, you know, there's a lot of different strategies you can take depending on, you know, whatever sort of area or project you're working on. I think some of the things that have really been helpful for me are like, I always have made positive projects. Um, number one is just having like a site workforce of volunteers. Uh, it's not always like, you know, project or programs like FRCS where there's full on paid crews. It's not necessarily like that for every single area. Like not every community has those kind of resources or lay managers have those kind of resources. And so, you inevitably end up working with a lot of volunteers instead of FRCS. But um, yeah, being able to have people that are psyched and willing to come out day after day uh, and put in the time is, is huge. It just makes it better for everyone. It really makes it feel like there's a community effort going on. Folks can really have a connection to that place more so than just the climbing. Um, they feel a connection when they come there uh, and they know like, oh, I put that step in 
or I help with that belief ad. I think that's been a huge thing. And then, yeah, I think it was just relationships. Like so much of life comes down to your relationships with folks, but having just really strong relationships with the land managers and with your partners, having that trust where you can come in and say like, Hey, I, you know, we know what we're doing. Uh, we can come in and take over this project for you and having the land manager say like, okay, I trust you and I'm not going to nitpick or I'm, I'm going to let the climbers sort of do, you know, what they do best, uh, which is try and work within themselves to deal with their issues. And so I think that trust is a big thing. It's like key, um, and building that up before you try and take on big projects is huge. Like so many projects, um, I don't think folks understand like how many years of relationship building have gone on to make that happen. Uh, it's not just like we walked out there with, with shovels and started digging. It's just like years of work to get to that point. And yeah, I think just yeah, having a community that really like fosters giving back to the crags, I think is a huge thing. Um, and that plays into the volunteers, but just having folks that are excited to be there um, and sort of like building that of like, we're all here working together, sweating together to take care of a place we all love. Uh, I just, it's really special. It's like most satisfying feeling at the end of the day that like you've been working outside, uh, you know, just busting your butt to get a project done with a bunch of people that are excited to be there. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that that's sort of like sort of shared uh, love for our areas and wanted to give back is a huge thing to you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it's hard work and you're literally putting blood maybe some blood, but sweat and tears in it. And yeah, I had a kind of a personal experience myself this past spring when I was in Indian Creek and we had a, a, a rainy day. So we had to take a day off the next day to let the rock dry a bit. And uh, the access fund stewardship crew was out there. Our conservation crew was out there and working on a staircase to one of the popular walls. And yeah, we put two steps in. I mean, it, you'd be surprised. I mean, you know this, but how long it takes to put like a single step in to a staircase. I mean, we got two, I think two steps in, in like an hour and a half or two hours. It took so much nitpicking to make sure it's just right. And there's this, it's sound. It, it won't shift on anyone when they walk up it. But my buddy found a really unique looking boulder to, or rock to put in the step. And every time I go up to that wall now, I'm going to know exactly what two steps we put in. It's going to be very satisfying and tangible. And you can, you can point it out on your way up. It's great. Yeah, it's really great for folks to see how much work goes into these things. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's the same way for any sort of outdoor ring activity where um, you just fly by on the trail and you're like on your way up to the crag. You don't think about all those steps you just took and like how long that project took. And not just like the staircase itself, like again, building that relationship with that land manager, getting the approvals, like getting the permitting done. Uh, it's so much work. And so, yeah, I think it's really valuable for folks to kind of see that. And yeah, so being able to put a step in. And like seeing how much work it is, um, and yeah, then having something to like remember that that by, I think it's really special. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many places where we can do that work. There's everyone can have their step. Every single climber could <laughs> could have their step, <laughs> and we still have work to do, probably. Yeah, yeah, they look like a Hollywood, like kind of Walk of Fame or mm -hmm. whatever. Like yeah, they just know like where they can uh, kind of etch their name on that rock, not literally, but you know, they know what they did. Yeah, uh, I wanted to. A follow up real quick on the on the land manager and the trust thing that you kept mentioning and building trust with the land manager. Have you ever had to write up a formal MOU or like a formal written agreement on what their responsibilities are, what the LCO's responsibilities are? So it really puts it in writing of what what's going on here and how the stewardship stuff's going to get taken care of. 
Yeah, so I, you know, I didn't necessarily draft anyone when I was working for the BCC, but we had a lot of those agreements with you know, pretty much all of our partners, either MOUs or cost shares with Forest Service. Um, yeah, m- many of our agreements were written down and recorded, and I think it is really valuable to have those things. Um, number one, because it's a lot of turnover, you know, especially with federal public right. lands, like there's a lot of turnover in staff. And so having it written down somewhere can be huge when you go through you know, you got three rec rangers in one year that you've tried to deal with, and each one of them has a different feeling toward climbers or climbing or folks in your organization. So having those MOUs or, uh, you know, whatever sort of agreement written down in place and they're laying out like what the climbing community or what your LCO is taking on can be really important. Um, and at the same time, like you don't, you don't necessarily always have to have the documentation in place, but I think it's something worth striving for. and definitely like a good benchmark to have uh, to show your partnerships too. It's something you can lean on um, year over year. Yeah, of course. I just feel like that could, that could, uh, kick things off on the right, off the, on the right foot. When you start talking to land managers, like, Hey, this is a way that we, you you can put trust in us and let's formalize this thing. I think that would be attractive to them if you could write up something instead of just like a handshake agreement right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, like it definitely gives a little more sort of clout and, and, um, Yes, I'm going to lean on for the LCO, your climbing community to be, I mean, to to formalize as an LCO being a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, But yeah, it just gives the language something more to lean on. It's like, it's not just a bunch of random climbers who came out of the woods to try and strike a deal with you. Um, (laughs) It's like, you know, climbers can be organized. We can be professional. uh, And that does go a long way with a lot of land managers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's pivot a little bit from like your stewardship career, uh, you know, focus just on stewardship to your current position as Access Funds Southeast Regional Manager. You got a lot more than just stewardship on your plate. You're handling, I counted uh, like 10 states. I mean, 10 states make up like kind of this Southeast region, which is kind of a lot, you know, for, I know you have like a team to back you and everything, but for for one person like yourself to to handle. So I'm curious, like what's what's going on with this position? What are you tasked with? And what does this position entail? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a big area. Uh, it's definitely felt like a step up in terms of just juggling so many things. Uh, and a lot of the areas are very different from each other um, and quite far apart. Uh, so yeah, that's that's definitely been a, a change. Uh, so yeah, yeah, my role, like I'm, I'm you know in charge of delivering sort of the core programming, the things you think about when you think of the access fund. Um, so conservation acquisition work, our like private landowner, public land manager support, stewardship, education, policy, government affairs, LCO support, um, sort of all those things for the region. And I'm really very fortunate. I get to work with a lot of strong LCOs, which is really great. I've like this first, I mean, it's pretty much been two months now that I've been in this role. Uh, it's been a lot of just LCO support um, or kind of working with them on existing projects. Like some of them where, uh, you know, a strong LCO might actually be the lead and an access fund is sort of taking more of a, an advisory role or support role, um, which has been really nice to start that way and just see the really strong LCOs uh, in this region, like Carolina Climbers Coalition, Southeastern Climbers Coalition, um, some really strong partners there doing some great work. Uh, but yeah, you know, basically all the things the access fund does and in a heavy dose of access and acquisition work uh, is really what I'm focused on and what I'm tasked with. And then, yeah, I think it's, it might be nine, nine or 10 states. I might be forgetting one. (laughs) I think it's Um, right. Yeah. I, I read your job description and I kind of, yeah, there's a, there's a, I mean, there's a couple in there that, um, you know, they don't have, as far as I know, there's not a ton of climbing like Florida, 
um, I think Mississippi. I'm mm-hmm. not totally familiar with Mississippi. I know like uh, like Arkansas and Alabama have have quite a bit of climbing, but there's a couple states in there that I don't think have a ton of outdoor opportunities. So I'm curious, like what those conversations might look like if you're connecting with folks in those states. Yeah, so it's it's something interesting to have states that really have maybe no climbing opportunities or very limited climbing opportunities. Um, and so one thing you know, like there's, there's folks I think like, some of the most psyched climbers I've met were from Florida, and they were just like they were willing to drive awesome. like nine hours to go rock climbing like in a weekend. Uh, it's really impressive to see the psych. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think something like it's been focused on like, and it's even been reflected in access funds. We sort of, we did a strategic planning session right before I actually got on and we updated our mission, uh, which has sort of been shifted to talk more, like, more so than just the physical environment for rock climbing, like access funds mission for someone was like, it was about protecting climbing access. Um, and the new one I can just read here is uh, to lead and inspire the climbing community towards sustainable access and conservation of the climbing environment. And so it's really this pivot uh, to include the climate community, the people and not just the places. And so, um, that's something that I'm excited to work with these folks with is like, you know, even though you may not have a backyard crag or you may have to be a long way from climbing, like you are still a part of the climbing community and you play a role uh, in this big sport we are all enjoying. And so it, you know, it may not be the same thing that certain folks who have climbing in the backyard have, but yeah, you're still part of it. And so we can, you, we can help, you can use this for all sorts of things like, and, and that may be more programming in the gyms. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's really like focusing on that community side of things and building that out and building, really making more advocates for the sport. Um, and so the more of us there are, the better off we'll be and the more hands we'll have to take care of climbing areas in the future. Yeah, indeed. I love that you mentioned that the social dynamic in this conservation uh, effort that we're having and, and that we're taking on right now. And there's so many challenges in, in this field. And I think uh, there might there's not always, but there's sometimes a disconnect between the, the social capital, the social aspect of conservation. And we're so focused on perhaps the natural resources, the the crags, the boulders, and out, even outside of climbing, you know, wildlife and, and everything else. But I think trying to pull that nexus closer together between the social aspect and getting the humans uh, connected to these things is I think there's a challenge there does that does that does that make sense I hope uh hope I'm on the right track there <laughs> yeah yeah definitely it's really like yeah bringing the two together and yeah really focusing on sort of the, the social side of it uh, and using that to really amplify the message um, if we can get more mm-hmm. folks in we can get them bought in um, it's just it's more people on board to help sort of guide climbing in the way we want to see it in the future and, and more hands to take care of the areas we care about uh, and so yeah I think you're definitely around the money of it's sort of this shift from, you know, we're still obviously doing a lot of our core programming and, and working at climbing areas all over the country, but sure. trying to think it's about the communities as well and like really build that aspect out and, and sort of make the next community of climbers and, and know that they really care about these things and know that they're important. Yeah, yeah. At its core, Access Fund is a land trust. They're there to protect climbing areas, conserve climbing areas through a number of different of methods and tools and everything. And, um, yeah, I, I just love like the the new focus that the, the the climbing community has on on the social aspect, and not only connecting new folks to the sport to become advocates, but also connecting climbing to these underserved communities as well. I think that's a huge thing, and and uh, I love what Access Funds efforts are are doing in that space. And I recently just did a little bit of a project with uh, Tamor and Eric uh, Murdoch, who are 
staff access fund and um, looking at communities that are predominantly white communities versus communities of color and underserved communities and what that access looks like between those two communities. And what we found out was really interesting. I won't go into all the details right now, but what I'm getting at and something you wanted to talk about was focusing on rural development in Appalachia and around outdoor recreation. I'm really interested in hearing more about this because I think when we think of underserved communities, we think of communities of color and, and such, but there is also these rural areas in Appalachia that could also maybe fall under that umbrella as well. So do you want to dive into that a little bit and, and uh, bring us up to speed on what you're talking about with focusing on rural development in that area? Yes, I think something has been, I mean, that's something I knew about from being raised in the Southeast and then had sort of dealt with it a little bit more uh, living out West and particularly in Nevada, um, sort of this idea and, and really just communities buying into this outdoor recreation economy model. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like we, we hear about it all the time, um, but but it's definitely very interesting to see sort of the communities around rural Appalachia that have really bought into it and have started putting some money behind it. Um, but yeah, so, you know, these, these sort of like rural areas uh, that have had more extractive based economies um, for basically exactly. their whole history, uh, those have started to dry up. Uh, I think they've, they've tried it for a while now. And so a lot of these areas have been sort of, I mean, they just feel very backwater. They just don't feel like much is really going on there. The towns are really almost becoming ghost towns and they're looking for something new. They're looking for a new economic driver and a reason for folks to be there and to try and improve the quality of life for the residents that are there. And so it's been interesting and I'm still you know, somewhat new into this realm, but it's been really interesting to see some of the success that some of our LCO partners and Access Fund has had uh, working in areas like Southwest Virginia, uh, Eastern Kentucky, um, like, you know, coal country areas and seeing these local towns and municipalities really excited about rock climbers. They're like, they want to see rock climbing come in and they're willing to put money behind it. Like they're willing to give grants to help bring in development. Um, they're just really excited to see something new and see something that's, it's different from what they've seen before. And so that's been a really exciting thing. And we've had a lot of interesting climbing areas. I mean, that's probably the, the, the biggest amount, the largest amount of climbing areas that are, that are new from when I left about six years ago to now have been in the Southwest Virginia area with Central Appalachia's Climbers Coalition in their backyard. They've just been opening up numerous climbing areas um, and have had a lot of success because it's these rural communities that are looking for something new. And they, and they see rock climbing and they, like, they're bought into it. And some of that's the messaging that's been out there. Um, and some of the great relationships they've been able to form with climbers in the region. But it's been really exciting to see. And it's sort of been working its way up the ladder a little bit. Um, there's, a lot, there's a number of federal programs that are charged with dealing or trying to address these concerns in rural Appalachia, like the Appalachian Regional Commission. And they're talking about uh, funding these types of projects. And so it's a really interesting spot to be in where it seems like, you know, we, we could be getting asked to come in and, and bring climbing to an area, LCOs may be being asked, like, you know, we want to see rock climbing. Can you bring it to this area? Can you come out and assess <laughs> this rock and see if we can put rock climbing here? Um, and so it's just been really cool to see folks being so bought into it and wanting, wanting to have a transition um, from what had been their previous economies and, and sort of coal and mining to outdoor recreation. Right, right. Yeah, it's a common theme in, in many uh, towns like that. I've seen it, seen it, many examples of that. And I want to give a quick plug for uh, James Maples. I mean, I'm sure you're very familiar with him and his work in the and quantifying the economic impact in the Red River Gorge that the climbers have had in Eastern Kentucky. And it's it's really impressive. I really want to read his book. That uh, I'm not sure how recent that came out, but um, 
I mean, the, the, the proof is in the pudding right there that climbers can have an economic impact in these rural areas. Yeah, so we and we're working with Dr. Mabels a lot. We've got a, we've got him teed up for a few different studies in the southeast. Um, we're just trying to do more. It's, you know, we've we've mm-hmm. seen the effectiveness of having those articles and those reports to lean on, and we go and have these discussions with either cities or counties or local municipalities. And so, uh, yeah, we we've really seen the value of that, and it's really seemed to have paid off in certain communities. Uh, the yeah. red being one of them. Yep. 100%. Yeah, I think uh, he might be slated to come on the show later this year. I cannot. I've seen him speak at, I don't know, two or three or maybe every annual conference I've been to uh, for you know, the Access Funds annual conference each year. And uh, I've seen, yeah, seen him speak multiple times. It's, he's so enthusiastic about it, and he's not a climber, which I think is one of the coolest parts of, of, of his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's a he's an interesting <laughs> dude, and yeah, he does such great work, and he's been I mean such an such an asset to the climate community, um, yeah. which has been really cool to see, and yeah, just a yeah. great great person. Another thing I wanted to touch on is uh, I mean you've you've split your time a bit between the Western United States, the Eastern United States. You've gotten kind of a, a full, well-rounded, holistic picture on how climate access and management works. And I thought maybe we can dump jump into this a little bit. We've talked about this kind of thing on previous episodes, just public land versus private land. Obviously, much more public land out here in the Western United States versus much more private in the Eastern, and what challenges or opportunities that might bring about. But do you want to talk about a little bit more about those strategies for climate access and management between these two uh, Eastern and Western regions of the country? Yeah, it's been it's been interesting to like be from this area now, then come back and spend a large chunk of time working in sort of the same space out west. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people assume that. Uh, back east, it's uh, it's like all private land, and, and in reality, it's it's not. There is a lot of private land. There's a lot of outdoor recreation activities on private land, but there's really a large mix of federal, state, local, and private land. Um, and just as sort of an example, like this Chattanooga example I was putting together earlier, is just in like sort of the backyard, almost the viewshed of Chattanooga. You've got Sunset, which is managed by the National Park Service. You've got the T Wall, which is a state forest managed by the Tennessee Department of Agriculture. You got Foster Falls, which is a state park, and you've got Woodcock, which is a privately owned area by the Southeastern Climbers Coalition. And so, all within you know thirty minute bubble, you've got many different land managers with many different policies. Uh, and yeah, it's just quite a different scene where rather than dealing with one giant entity like the BLM uh, or the Forest Service, uh, you've got so many more to deal with. And so, it's sort of like it's an opportunity and a challenge at the same time because you can have you have that many more chances to have relationships with different folks. Like you can have a relationship with Tennessee state parks. That's really well. And, and, but maybe your relationship with the Toronto magazine is, isn't as solid. And so it, it plays out in the climbing areas that are on the ground. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's just like a thing to highlight when folks go out and they go climbing. The other thing is like, it may not all be owned by one group. There's like a lot of areas that have a lot of split ownership. Um, the red being a big one where it's just tons of different land, like private owners and public owners yep. in there. Um, and it's not really as clear Whereas like if you're out west, it's it's quite clear sometimes the designations between this national park or this forest service and BLM land. It can be a little uh, confusing there as well. But it's here, it's like it, it really can depend from one climb to the next at the cliff. Uh, and so that's an, that's an added challenge for sure is having folks know that and make sure they know sort of the rules and policies for each one or that they're not trespassing at one side of the cliff versus the other. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of exciting because it does have the potential to – 
you just have so many more partners to work with and all of them can have different desires they want to see or different management strategies they want to take on. Um, and you kind of have a different strategy with each one, whether it's a city or a county or a state or you know, depending on what division of the state you're working with. Uh, so it can be kind of exciting in that sense and that you get a lot more options on the table um, because you really have all, you have a whole host of options for conservation strategies. Like you can try working with the, you know, the official policy channels. You can, um, do advocacy at the state level. You can just outright buy climbing areas. Um, so the, from that sense, from a work standpoint, it's really exciting and it gives a lot of options on the table um, for getting projects done and opening new climbing areas. Yeah, to make sure that the climbers in your area know where they're also climbing, right? And there's got to be some kind of educational component that comes out of having so many different land managers in in a half an hour of the city of Chattanooga and knowing what those different regulations are. I mean, do you, do, do climbers around there run into any 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 challenges there, just not knowing how one might vary to the other? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely much more prevalent here for that to be a concern. You know, a lot of the LCS here have done a really good job with education on their websites, like really trying to cover all the main climbing areas that folks in their communities go to, whether it's their property or not, um, and having information about who the area manager is, what their rules are, the links to their website. Um, so the information is out there, and I think it's a really good resource for any LCAs uh, that, that have that sort of issue, um, is just going in and cataloging all that information so that, number one, it's easy for folks to find, uh, and, and putting that on your website so that you can, so folks either want to actually learn the rules and want to follow them can find them. And at the same time, signage as well. Signage can be really key out here so you know, like, okay, I'm on maybe a CCC owned property here. And at this boundary, it turns into someone else's land and they've got different rules. And so, yeah, the education component is, component is huge because um, a lot of folks just want to like, they just like go to the crag and don't think about it. But here it can really matter. Absolutely. Well, I would be remiss if we started to put a bow in this conversation and to not uh, congratulate the Access Fund and the Carolina Climbers Coalition and perhaps yourself. I'm not sure how much you were involved in this new acquisition of this new bouldering area. You want to give us some, a little bit more detail on that and how this uh, acquisition came to be? Oh, yeah. yeah, The, the Maybauer boulders in North Carolina. Uh, yeah, they just... They just closed that deal like earlier this week. Uh, it was very exciting. I really played almost no role in it. It was a little bit before <laughs> my time. And, and this is a great example, like the CCC and Mike Reardon and his board is really just leading the charge. Um, this is really a project that we were just supporting on. And, and obviously they used Access Fund's revolving loan for it, but you know, they did a lot of the legwork in this um, and did an amazing job closing it up. And so, yeah, it's not every day that uh, LCO gets to buy a climbing area. And so mm-hmm. it's quite exciting. And I haven't actually been to the Maybar Boulders, but... From everything I've heard, it's a quite a quality granite boulder field, and it's in sort of part of the state, like Piedmont area, where there's not as many climbing areas around it. So uh, it serves a huge population, or you know, most of sort of the population of North Carolina lives um, mm-hmm. more of the Piedmont and coastal areas. It's a lot closer to them than say the Western North Carolina, more classic areas people think about. So yeah, it's really exciting, and there's just tons of potential like that. You know, they they they've got projects stacked up, uh, but this was a really cool one to see see get finished and and to see them uh, get to tie the bow on it and everything go smoothly. Uh, and so, yeah, mm-hmm. really excited for them. And I'm excited to go see it here soon. Yeah, that's great. Are you heading out there yeah, sometime soon? No, I mean, I, we'll see. If I end up in that neck of the woods, I would. And it's more of a winter area for actual proper climbing. Right, but, uh, totally. We'll actually sort of be not that far in a few weekends. I'll be over to Linville Gorge. And so I might make a trip over that way just to see it. Um, nice. But yeah, yeah, it's exciting. 
Do you get to travel to all the states that are in your in your region, your jurisdiction, from Florida to to North Carolina over to Mississippi? Yeah, you know, I mean, definitely part a big part of the deal, especially this first year, is travel. Um, just meeting a ton of folks and seeing projects like some of these areas I might be somewhat familiar with from just experience climbing there before, but um, you know, I may not know the exact site, especially not some of these new areas. And so, yeah, I feel like my first year, which is you know just kicking off, is going to be a lot of travel. Uh, and the big festival circuit, um, you know, the southeastern festival circuit in the fall is is quite intense. There's a lot of different things going on between Oktoberfest and the the Kraken Classic at the New and Triple Crown, and so I'll be trying to make an appearance at all those and and meet with folks and see different areas and sort of stack it with different projects. But yeah, a lot of travel uh, is definitely in my future, um, which is exciting. I said some of these areas I've seen and I know pretty well, but a lot of them I'm I'm not as familiar with. So it'll be really cool to go and just meet some of the folks that have been there doing the good work and, and see some of these areas and just get more familiar with them. Yeah. Awesome. Good for you. That's, that's so cool. I'm, I'm pretty jealous of your, your position right now. <laughs> Could real quick before we uh, really wrap this up, um, you mentioned the revolving load program. I just want to make a, a plug for this again that we've talked about it in previous episodes, but I want to make sure folks understand what this opportunity is that the access fund has. And the, I think the formal name for it is the climbing conservation loan program. Could you give us some details on that? So folks know of this program in case there is an opportunity for them to purchase climbing area. Yeah, yeah. So the Climbing Conservation Loan Program or the CCLP is one of Access Fund's signature programs and offerings for the climbing community. And effectively, it's it's a pot of money. It's, it's the fund, if you will, an Access Fund uh, that is is set aside and ready for us to give out and loan out to different LCOs or partners who are trying to buy a climbing area that need the cash immediately to close a deal. Um, and then they can pay it back over, uh, you know, the structured deal with low interest over, I think it's like three years or maybe a little more. I don't actually know the details of it. Brian would have all those, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a really useful tool for if you have a, you, know, you have an eye on a, a private parcel that goes up for sale that has climbing on it. Um, and the community is psyched for it. Uh, it's a way to get quick funds into your hands. So you can make that deal, uh, and conserve per- permanently conserve that climbing area and jump at the, at the, at the times needed. And then pay it back mm-hmm. to a friendly lender over X number of years. And Access Fund helps with all the different uh, needs in terms of closing finance or closing the deals for the property. Um, helps with fundraising campaigns. Help pay the money back. Um, it's really like a full turnkey sort of program to help buy climbers and put them in climbers' hands. And it's yeah, it's it's a great tool. Uh, it's been used for so many acquisitions around the country. Um, and yeah, it's one that will be around for a long time and we would love to use more. Well, yeah, I'm sure people will be knocking on your door at some yeah. point uh, yeah, looking for more. I mean, it's an incredible program. And I just want to make sure that anyone listens to this episode knows that this is out there. It's it's such an incredible resource to have. Outside of this new acquisition in, Car- in North Carolina, what other potential do you see for the Southeast? Is there, is there room for new development, uh, improving access to, to more areas? What's that look like uh, potential-wise for the Southeast? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much. It's honestly like being in this role for like two months now. It's quite overwhelming, um, but it's really exciting. I mean, there's, yeah, there is seemingly no shortage of new climbing area popping up on the radar. Um, and a lot of them have the potential to be permanently protected either through easements or acquisitions or partnerships with uh, local and state land managers. Um, but yeah, you know, pretty much every state that has got rock in it that I'm working in has got some sort of new, exciting project, new climbing area. 
um, or, or the potential to improve access to the existing places. We've got a few sort of kind of classic access concerns all over the region. You know, maybe some access that w- once was better and has now been restricted either through private land managers, private landowners' decision, or public land manager wanted to restrict climbing, and we're trying to work on some of those from Georgia to, to West Virginia. Um, but yeah, it's really exciting. There's there's so many new areas coming up. Uh, it's honestly like it's it's cool to come back and feel like it's a different landscape. Like being from, from South Carolina, like there were really not very many climbing opportunities when I left, um, and now there's multiple climbing opportunities like at Pumpkin Town, over at Table Rock, and uh, yeah, it's just it's really cool to see all these new areas coming up, and it really feels like there's no shortage. Um, so yeah, I'd be careful what I say about offering the CCLP. I am going to have a bunch of people knocking on my door. Ready to go, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like we've got a few on the docket this year that seem like they could be likely, you know, nothing's necessarily set in stone, but there's enough potential projects. That it feels like one or two of them are going to come up this year. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll be trying to jump and either outright purchase or get an easement on what will be a new or maybe sort of under the radar climbing area that'll be more ready for uh, to be open to the public. Uh, which is yeah. which is quite exciting. Something I was like really excited for about this job was to be able to go out and buy climbing areas, just open new climbing areas. That's just quite it's pretty cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is very cool. And and with opening new climbing areas, you know, it comes stewardship and comes you know needing to take care of the place too. So there's kind of a yeah a double component there. Yeah, when you when you conserve more places, that they need to get taken care of after that. So um, yeah, I think you're perfectly fit for the role here. Yeah, I would say that's a good point too. Is like there's there's so many projects that need attention and need a lot of stewardship work, and we've got a lot of you know said strong LCO partners that are really jumping in, and really what they need is more funding. And so, trying to find more money for some of these stewardship projects um, at all different land managers and on, on their own properties, um, and really sort of working on some state advocacy campaigns, having you know access fund and LCO from that region, like going to the state capital and talking with legislators, trying to get more money and more attention to climbing uh, in these specific states. And so, yeah, it's really across the whole board. There's just no shortage of things to work on and exciting projects. And really, it feels like the future is very bright uh, for climbers in the Southeast. Great. That's amazing, man. Uh, let's wrap it up here with, um, you know, the, the annual conferences this year in Chattanooga. And I was wondering, yeah, what can we look forward to with the annual conference being in Chattanooga this year? Yeah, I know it's, it's quite awesome to, like, to move here and it's going to be my backyard. It's kind of cool. Um, yeah, Jenna and the whole Access Fund team has been doing a great job getting that together. We've got some really good – I think the schedule is actually up now. Um, we've got some really good panelists uh, that are coming down, like a lot of the strong LCO leaders um, and sort of just experts in either you know working with state lands or acquisitions, climbers managing their own climbing areas will be there and presenting. I think James Maples will be there again talking about economic impacts, uh, which will be exciting to have. But yeah, it's really going to be you know, really a really big gathering of folks from from the Southeast and hopefully from all over the country. Um, just a real mixing pot of all the different LCOs and climbers um, get to know each other and see what folks are working on. And we've got you know local friends plugged in. We've got the crash pad uh, hooking up their space in, in Chattanooga, which will be really fun. And yeah, I think the second day we're going to have a lot of field trips to some of the areas around Chattanooga. Um, so I know the Wahatchee Boulders, which was a, an access fund project, um, and I believe Denny Cove. And so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a jam packed conference. There'll be all sorts of exciting panels going on, field trips, uh, beer drinking, mingling, <laughs> all the things. And so it'll be well worth it. In November is prime time to be here too. So if folks want to extend their trips. 
uh, there'll be no shortage of prime conditions to go climbing. Yeah, I'm going to be tapping on your shoulder for a partner for a few days after it's over. So I hope you're free. Yeah, definitely. No, I'll be free. It'll be, uh, it'll be really fun to have everybody here. It's really valuable and, and quite fun to go and meet all these different folks like from around the country that are sort of engaged in the same work. Like they care about climbing. They're in that sort of climate conservation advocacy realm. Um, I've met some super interesting and unique people and they've helped me a lot with some of this like this you know quote unquote career um, just learning what they've done and what's worked for them and like yeah just really excited to pick people's brains and hear what what they've been doing um, so yeah I think it's worth it for anyone uh, any climb, climbing advocate to come out and just meet with those folks and, and get to experience a new place potentially in Chattanooga alright thanks everyone for tuning in I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll catch you all next time.